0: Welcome to the Waking Up Podcast. Okay, this is an AMA, AMA number nine, and this is for all of you who are supporting the show, so thank you again for that. This is your first AMA, this is the second that has been just for podcast supporters, and this is where I answer your questions posed on the AMA page on my website, and that page is about to get better In fact, my entire website is is being redesigned, so there'll be more functionality there. There'll be a downvote, which will help in amplifying good questions. And if you have any issues with hearing these AMAs, if there's a better way for us to deliver these to you, send those suggestions to info at samharris.org. Okay, I'm going to jump right into this. The first question I'm going to answer is not actually on the AMA page, it's just something that I saw a lot on social media, uh, and it relates to the Vegas shooting. Many people wondered why I didn't comment on it. I was actually out of the country when it happened, and um, not entirely on top of the news, but many have wondered whether the shooting in Vegas changes my sense of gun safety or anything that I said in The Riddle of the Gun, which is my blog post on guns that many people have found very useful and many have found it confounding. Um, and there's, there's also a, a podcast version of that blog post where I read it and offer some marginalia while reading. I don't think I changed much in the reading, but there might be a few more points in the podcast version. So I, I really am, I can't Say enough here to fully explain my view on guns, because that's hard enough to do when I'm doing nothing but that for for an hour or so. I have a view that's not easy to summarize, but I'll, I'll remind you about some of the basic points. There are certain things I say that can be read as pro-gun, but you should recall that the policies I support are, in fact more intrusive and constraining. Of gun ownership than any that most gun safety advocates dare propose. I'm incredibly pro safety, despite the fact that in certain sentences I can sound like I'm parroting NRA talking points. I think getting licensed to own a gun, and uh, even more so if you're talking about carrying a gun in public, should be like getting a pilot's license it should require real training, and obviously not everyone will qualify. And the other point I should remind you of is that the moment there's a non-lethal alternative to a gun that has all of the defensive characteristics of a gun, I think the right to own guns should be rescinded. I have no attachment to guns as guns. I don't have any sentimental attachment, much less a religious one, to the Second Amendment. For me, the only defense of gun ownership, and I'm leaving hunting and gun sports aside, I'm not talking about biathlon, but the only defense of ordinary people owning guns in the home comes down to the ethics of self-defense. Right. The question for me is, what technology should a single mother have access to in the middle of the night, right, when she hears a window breaking in her house. And in the worst case scenario, where that window breaking is not an act of vandalism, but it's actually someone coming into her home to rape and murder her, right? This sort of thing happens. It's not super common, but it happens continuously somewhere, right? This is part of the human experience. And whatever side of the issue of gun ownership you're going to come down on, you have to grapple with the hard case. The hard case is you have an innocent woman about to be completely overpowered by a malevolent lunatic entering her home in the middle of the night, but for the fact that she has access to some technology to prevent that. Now, if you're going to say that no one should ever own a gun, you have to say that that woman shouldn't have a gun. And I definitely cannot say that, right? That is until there's a real alternative. Now, the moment we have something like a super taser, right, which can stun somebody as effectively as a gun can kill him and keep him incapacitated until the police arrive, well, then that's what I think people should have the right to own. Again, I don't have a gun fetish. I have a self defense concern. I should also make clear that I think the NRA is a despicable organization, it is a cult. And it is simply astounding that it has the political power that it does, or that it is perceived to have that political power. I don't, in fact, know that it does have as much as is imagined. It certainly doesn't give away as much money as people think. I think it only has 4 million or 5 million members. A single billionaire could cancel the funding implications of whatever the NRA does every year and do this year after year. But the fact that the NRA is a terrible organization that has made a religion out of gun ownership doesn't mean that everything its members say is wrong, right? And it certainly doesn't make everyone who justifiably hates the NRA magically knowledgeable about guns. And this is really the problem. Most of the people who oppose the NRA and who talk about gun safety in the aftermath of an atrocity like Las Vegas Don't know anything about guns or gun violence, and their ignorance really matters. Imagine what it would be like to be arguing stridently for climate science being a a major priority, right? We have to take climate science seriously. We have to stop human caused global warming, right? Imagine in that context if 75% of what such people said was demonstrably wrong, right? What if most of the people, most of the time, who spoke about climate science were getting their climate science wrong to anyone who knew anything about climate science? That's the situation we're in with guns. It's a doomed effort, and it's embarrassing. And most of the people who talk about guns are so clueless about guns that they don't even know enough to be embarrassed by their errors. It's a real problem of communication across culture. Now, as I discussed in The Riddle of the Gun, the problem of gun violence, and gun negligence, and suicide, and all the other misuses of firearms, is overwhelmingly a problem with handguns. It's precisely the guns that almost no one has imagined making illegal that are causing the most death and injury. Okay, so banning assault weapons isn't really getting at the problem, despite the terrifying example of what happened in Vegas. So my position is, by all means, ban assault weapons. But the problem you are left with is still 99% as large as it was before. So until you're talking about making it harder for most people to get handguns, until you're talking about making it harder for someone with a handgun to get into a public place where they could harm others, a workplace, a restaurant, a shopping mall, a movie theater. Until you're talking about reliably confiscating millions upon millions of handguns that are already out there in the wrong hands, you're not talking about significantly reducing gun violence. Until you make the the penalty for committing a crime With a gun, much, much worse than committing that same crime with some other weapon, or you make the penalty for storing guns unsafely absolutely draconian, you're not going to move the dial here. So that's one issue. And again, I view the issue of gun safety, like gun storage in particular, to be one of education. People need to understand that you can store a gun safely and still have access to it, if you ever need it. Even most gun owners sound completely clueless about this. But to talk about Vegas in particular, the thing that seems obvious to people is that, the, is that the weapons this shooter had access to were largely responsible for the level of death and injury he was able to cause. And that's true. And this is something I explain at length in The Riddle of the Gun, the significance of a rifle is that it makes even an unskilled shooter highly accurate at distance, right? So if you wanted to shoot somebody standing 200 yards away with a handgun, even the best marksmen on earth would find that challenging and it would be unreliable. This is not an exaggeration. The best shooters on earth can't reliably hit what they're aiming at at 200 yards with a handgun. With a rifle, any one of you listening to this who has never shot a gun could, in the space of a half hour, learn to reliably hit something at 200 yards. That's a big difference, right? So the problem with rifles is their accuracy at distance. Now, in this case, you had the additional problem of a rifle that was modified to be nearly a fully automatic rifle. Now, this almost never happens. All of the mass shootings you've heard about throughout your life have been accomplished with ordinary semi-automatic guns. Full auto is not something that even most gun-obsessed people have access to, and this modification with a bump stock is is not a normal thing, right? So, Full auto has not been a problem in the history of of gun violence in the U.S., and generally speaking, it doesn't even make guns more dangerous because it makes you less accurate. When the Navy SEALs have to go into a building and kill a bunch of terrorists who are holed up there, they don't tend to go in on full auto with their guns because you are less accurate. Right, spraying bullets is generally not an advantage when you want to kill as many people as possible, and this is why full auto is not generally a big concern, except in the case of what happened in Vegas. Right, so what happened in Vegas is you had someone who was merely aiming at a crowd of thousands. Okay, so this is the perfect situation to kill and injure as many people as possible with full auto or something approximating full auto on a rifle. So it was a very unusual circumstance. If you basically can't miss, well then full auto is is an absolute nightmare. And that's the situation that occurred in Vegas. And of course, it should be illegal to modify your gun in that way. So it is true that had the Vegas shooter not had access to a rifle and not had access to a modification that made it like a fully automatic rifle, fewer people would have died and fewer people would have been injured. That's definitely true. Again, that's not the usual situation when you're talking about people being murdered with guns in American society. And when you talk about comparisons between the US and any other civilized country where the rate of gun deaths is infinitesimal by American standards, well, then you you are not just talking about assault rifles much less those that have been modified to be full auto right you're talking about handguns and until we grapple with the, the problem of handguns we're not grappling with the problem and finally i want to address this claim that this was an act of terrorism in vegas and the additional claim that had he been a muslim or sillier still Had he been black, this would definitely have been called an act of terrorism. And the only reason why it's not being called an act of terrorism is because he was white. This is just an absolutely toxic calumny. The left has to stop doing this. It's incredible that people get away with speaking this way. Not all atrocities are acts of terrorism. You could kill a thousand people and have it not be an act of terrorism. And you can fail to kill someone. You can, do, you can merely attempt to cause property damage and fail, and it can still be an act of terrorism. Terrorism is all about a person's motive. In particular, it suggests a link to an ideology that can be spread. Right? So the people who are saying that if this person were Muslim, it would be guaranteed to be classified as an act of terrorism, that's simply untrue. Right? I can well imagine a Muslim committing a murder or committing a thousand murders and feeling no temptation at all to call it terrorism if it's not an act of jihadism, if it's not motivated by a political or religious ideology, if its purpose is not to have an effect on society to get it to conform with that ideology, if it is rather the act of a psychologically unstable person or a delusional one. It's not terrorism, and it doesn't matter if the shooter is Muslim or Arab, much less black. It's really bad for us that this is how the conversation goes in the aftermath of something like this. Adam Lanza, the deranged young man who killed all those children at Sandy Hook Elementary, I'm unaware of anything he ever said that suggested he had a motive that could be described as terrorism. And maybe there's been some reporting about the Vegas shooter that suggests he he was motivated by some ideology, and I've missed it. But at the time that I'm recording this, I know of no evidence that this was an act of terrorism. It was an atrocity. So, got that off my chest, and now I'm getting to your AMA questions. Okay, question number one. I'm curious if you ever have heated debates with your wife. Do you ever experience total communication failures of the sort you experienced with Miriam Namazi on the podcast? What advice would you give people in relationships who don't always see eye-to-eye on difficult issues? Well, I'm happy to say that my conversations with my wife are impressively unlike the one I had with Mariam on the podcast. Not to say we... Have never argued, but we do not reach a stalemate of that sort. And that's probably one of the reasons why I married her. I can say that we argue very little now and have gotten better and better at finding our way to daylight when disagreements do arise. Part of what a successful marriage is, is getting better and better. At navigating these rough moments, so now I would say my communication with Annika is really remarkably easy. And when we hit something that we strongly disagree about, we are fairly disciplined in talking about it in a way that mitigates any bad feeling that could be coming up there. That wasn't always true, or was it? Was certainly less true in the beginning of our relationship. So there really it was a learning curve here. And one thing is just, you just learn to pick your battles a little better. Are there things that you may be inclined to compromise on where the where the wisdom of compromise is what you notice first, rather than the wisdom of hammering out every disagreement as though it were a negotiation between warring countries. But no, we don't reach that kind of stalemate and it would just be too exhausting if we did. But I can just say generally, as a matter of advice, you have to get better and better at communicating on these kinds of things in a relationship, and you have to bring that communication to a point where you're not continually bogged down with disagreement and bad feeling. And it can be very helpful to have a facilitator, like a a couple's counselor or therapist, when things get rough. When you're new parents, there's lots of stress at various moments in life, and even just a couple of sessions with a smart person who can show you your patterns of communication that are less than optimal, you really can't exaggerate how helpful that can be, even in an otherwise healthy relationship. Again, communication of that kind, or really any kind, is a skill, and you can get better at it. All right, next question. Has your opinion of Dave Rubin changed at all? Given your recent encounters with Mike Cernovich, your opinion of Trump, and Rubin's seeming apologia for him, fake news versus real journalism, his friendly encounters with odious lunatics like Alex Jones, can you really still defend Rubin's behavior? Considering your part in launching the Rubin Report, it seems like this needs to be addressed. Okay, well, I've been getting a bunch of these questions. I think the last time around, We ignored them, they came back. I don't know how many of you are actually interested in this, but this did get upvoted again by some hundreds of votes. Well, I think I'll just bring Dave on to talk about this. Dave, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Sam, it's a pleasure. You know, I don't know in the history of AMAs, has a guest ever appeared on an Ask Me Anything? You know, the operative letter here is the M for me. This is just like uh, the moment in the Woody Allen film. Was that
0: Annie Hall where he pulls out Marshall McLuhan? and
1: <laughs> We're online at the movie theater. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, lordy, lordy. Well, this must be fun for you. that uh, People seem to think you're either my lawyer or my doctor or my therapist or something. Um, but uh, listen, I will tell you, I will be as honest with you right now as I always am, certainly with you and with my audience and with people privately, which is when I, I say the same exact things. So first off, uh, we can address a couple of those people specifically, since since uh, it involved specific names. So Cernovich, I had Cernovich on about a year before the election. I don't remember the exact date. People can check it. And when I had Cernovich on, uh, the only reason I had him on was because it was just at the very beginnings of the Trump thing. It was when it started to actually seem real, just a tiny, tiny bit. And I was just looking on Twitter for anyone that was publicly supporting him. I thought there's something happening here. Like I keep seeing all these tweets about it. I see a lot of anonymous people and trolls and all that. But I was like, is there anyone that seems somewhat legit who maybe has written a book or something? Is there anyone there? And, and he basically was the only one. And I, and I had him on the show. And, uh, and actually, I think we had a pretty fruitful conversation. I did not know much of his work before then. I, I would welcome anyone to, to listen to it. I don't think there was uh anything patently racist or crazy said, you know, I have differences of political opinion with him but that's fine. Um interestingly, and I've told you this privately, but as long as we're recording this, I'll tell you again. I have not interacted with him once since he went on that tear about you. It he he of course the guy's using certain tactics uh that I don't like, but you know, also keep in mind I'm an interviewer. Uh I think you know a little something about interviewing. And occasionally, as an interviewer, you are going to talk to people who you disagree with, who you agree with, sometimes whom will have said things years before that you don't know about, or sometimes who will say things months or years after, which you also uh, shouldn't be held to account for. I see every now and again, someone like a Cernovich will tweet something now and people will be like, yeah, you see, Ruben, this is the guy you had on. It's like, I don't have a time machine. Like I asked him the questions that were appropriate at the time that I asked him or or that we did the interview. So, you know, some of it is just, I talk to people. I I had lunch with Larry King last week and I asked him about this actually, because I said, you know, Larry, something weird is going on here. I feel like every time I talk to somebody, uh, half the internet seems to think that I either endorse every one of their opinions or I believe everything that they're going to say or that I'm an ally or I'm promoting them or whatever. I said, you know, back in the day, you would talk to Louis Farrakhan on one night, David Duke the next night, the cast of Friends the next night, and then, uh, you know, a, a judge or, so, you know, some random uh, Hollywood doctor or something about plastic surgery. And nobody thought you had all this. And he, he was like, yeah, something crazy has happened. That's a loose quote of Larry King. So, uh, so that's one thing. Quickly, you also mentioned uh, Alex Jones.
0: Let's wait to get to Alex Jones, because I think, I think it's useful to respond to what you just said because i think the connection to larry is a a useful lens to to look at your situation through because obviously he's a a friend and and even a mentor of sorts and and in some ways you really do seem to be emulating his approach to doing interviews and this this makes you a very different interviewer than than i tend to be and and and, and so that just to spell out what that is i mean larry king was famous for I guess calling it a softball interview is slightly pejorative, but it was a he really was just trying to elicit people's account of themselves and, and he was not tending to push back or criticize or find fault with it. He was just trying to basically provide some sunlight for whoever he was talking to. And as you said, these people can be fairly extreme. And so and it seems to me you're you're emulating that a fair amount. Would you you agree with that? I mean,
1: I don't know that emulating per se. Look, the fact that, you know, I've become friends with Larry and yes, he has become a mentor of sorts and that he thinks that I'm even remotely decent enough to to be an interviewer, that it comes from this guy who I believe to be the true king of interviewing. But yes, so of course the phrase softball, which sort of does sound like a pejorative, I, I don't like that. But my policy on interviewing, I think, is somewhat similar to Larry's, which is that you can by letting people speak, by letting them really share their thoughts, you will always get more out of them. And eventually, if they don't know what they're talking about, they will hang themselves. Or sometimes if they do know what they're talking about, but their ideas are bad. So there are moments when I've been in interviews with people where I watch people either talk themselves into a circle, or I can almost visualize them actually tying the noose around their neck and hanging themselves because they're saying something completely ridiculous. So I would say as far as, as my style, if someone, if the worst criticism of me is, oh my God, he's too much like Larry King, I would take that as the greatest compliment on earth. And, you know, secondly, for these, for this certain subset of internet people, and they're mostly anonymous trolls and anime accounts that just want to see people fight. I mean, there's, there's a certain subset of people that are going to be listening to this right now and nothing will make them happier than if I say something right now that you're going to be upset with. And then they can clip it and take it out of context and put it out there. And then I'm going to have to defend myself. And then you're going to have to defend. And they can get clicks on their little Tumblr or whatever the hell it is. So I think a lot of this is just endless noise. I would say if someone doesn't like the way I interview somebody, you don't have to watch the show. I I certainly hope no one is being forced to watch the show. Uh, But if they are, you know, I'd like to find out how that's happening. I wonder then...
0: Is there any way to do this job wrong? Because there, you know, there's obviously two extremes here. You could be someone more like me who, when he hears something he disagrees with, usually can't let it go. And, and this, this has led to some fairly disastrous interviews on my podcast, some, some that I haven't wanted no. to release, some that I've released under duress, some that, that I've released and people have enjoyed. But really, they're just, they're just wars and they're unpleasant. my my first conversation with Jordan Peterson was a good example of this. We just got bogged down on the question of truth for two hours and couldn't move an inch past that. And we couldn't move because I wouldn't move. He wasn't making sense to my ear. He still isn't making sense on that topic. And I just, I couldn't let it go. And that, that, you know, that may be a failing of me as an interviewer, certainly, or or even as a person, but it's where I'm at. And then there is you know Larry King, on the other side of the spectrum, who would certainly if he would ever do that, I, I certainly haven't seen evidence of it. I'm wondering if there's given that range of response to views that an interviewer can disagree with, is there any way to do this job wrong and i'm and I'm asking that in in the specific case of when you're talking to someone who actually does warrant criticism and i I guess I've talked about this on the podcast before about being a kind of uncanny valley of credibility. I don't, does, does the phrase uncanny valley yeah. mean yeah. something to you in, in robotics? Yeah. So it's it's like if the person is sufficiently bad, like if if you were going to go into a prison and interview Charles Manson or or you know a serial killer, you wouldn't have to spend any time signaling that you disagree with that person or that you don't support what he did. You you could just go in as a kind of anthropologist and just find out what it's like to be them uh, and no one would fault you for it but if if there's someone sort of closer to normal but still fairly pathological it seems that that many people in the audience demand that you as the interviewer spend some time telegraphing that you disapprove of, of the, what this person has done or said or stands for and it seems to me that you you think you actually don't have to play by those rules. And, I, and I'm, it, you may not have to, but it hasn't occurred to me personally to think that. So, so how, do, yeah, how do you well, view that?
1: Uh, let me start with the broader question, which was, is there any wrong way to do this? Well, look, we both do this, and we do it in a, a different way. And yet we are friends, and we you know, have broken bread together. And even if we don't get to an agreement here, at least on my side, that certainly wouldn't affect any of those things. So, of course, there's different ways to do it. Is there a wrong way to do it? Look, if I suppose if you were interviewing somebody or I was interviewing somebody and they were blatantly lying about facts that you knew not to be true and you didn't say anything about it, that would probably be a wrong way of interviewing somebody. Now, a lot of the times when I'm interviewing somebody, they're telling me their opinions on things. If somebody said to me that Hitler was in charge, uh, you know, the Vietnam War is because of Hitler. Well, all right, we've got a pretty obvious flaw here, and that's something that I would point out. By the way, you know, it's so interesting to me because I think also that you can push back on people by asking the right questions. And I think that's really where, I think that's one of my strongest suits, is that sometimes I hear someone say something that doesn't quite jive with me, or I feel like is, is maybe factually tenuous, or they're not exactly sure what they said, what they said. And I will follow up in a way uh, that I think allows that answer to come out. So, yeah, we do do this differently. There's no doubt about it. And I enjoy listening to you do it. But you can. So here's what I would say. And using your example of Jordan Peterson is a, is a great one because, yeah, your first conversation with him, it was sort of never matched up properly. I think the second one was more fruitful. I, I'm pretty sure uh, you would agree with me on that. Uh, when I had him in here, I I had a... F- absolutely great conversation with him. It was one of my favorite interviews that I've ever done out of the hundreds that I've done. And I went in with an open mind, having a sense of what he does, having listened to, uh, to some of your interview with him and read, obviously, a bunch of other stuff. And at no point, you know, I never feel like I have to get anybody. I have never once, and I've sat down with progressives and far left people, and I've sat down with far right people and everything in between. I have never once, gone into an interview feeling that I have to get somebody or that I have to prove a point or anything. I'm genuinely interested in hearing people. Now, it's obvious that I, I'm very open about my political beliefs. So it's very obvious when I tend to agree with someone more and tend to agree with someone less. For example, just this past week, I had Laura Kipnis on, who's a professor at Northwestern, and she got in this whole hot water over Title IX. And she's a lefty. She's a progressive. I think she's very quickly going to find out that all the defenders of her, unfortunately, are going to all be on the right, but that's a whole separate story. But at one point, I was asking her a little bit about her leftism, and she said something like, Well, I don't want to let poor people starve. And I stopped her for a second and I said, Well, you know what? I, I don't think that's really what conservatives or libertarians want. They just want to do it differently. I'm, I'm slightly misquoting myself there. But that, so that's sort of the type of thing that I would try to do as opposed to then deconstructing every bit of her, uh, you know, political leanings. So I don't know that there's a really wrong way to do this. I'm a firm believer that especially, Sam, for the people that listen to you, that listen to me, and a few other that listen to Rogan and a couple other peoples in this space, these are pretty bright people. And I think a lot of the people that unfortunately are, are haranguing you about whatever they don't like about me, it's like they thrive on this sort of inner fighting, and they thrive on this sort of, we have to do it, we're so tolerant, except if you do anything differently than the exact way I want you to do it. And by the way, for as many people that may say, oh, you know, that may say to you, oh, Ruben should have asked this question this way or fought back more on this, the amount of emails that I get from people saying, you know, just listening to a refreshing, open conversation where I got someone to really hear themselves, I, I get a zillion of those. So I don't know that there's a right way or a wrong way. And I just, I really just do what I think is right. And I don't have much of an agenda other than trying to enjoy the work that I'm doing and doing something that has some value.
0: So take me to the Alex Jones moment, because I'm not even sure what you did with him. You were on his show, right? He wasn't on your show, right?
1: Yeah, I was on, it was a little bit after I had done that Prager video of why I left the left, which by the way, they titled it that I never did. I don't, I was actually sort of annoyed with them for the first hour and I've sort of come to embrace it because I don't think the left is liberal anymore. I think why I left the left, I'm pretty sure that Majid a, did a video titled that himself, even a few months before that. Anyway, for Alex Jones, I, they invited me on the show. I said, to, uh, I said to them, is it live? They said, yes. And I said, OK, I'll do it. And doing something live, it's like, well, now you can't edit me. So, and guess what happened? So, I get, so of course, I get all this hate. And again, it's all these anonymous Twitter trolls. It's very rarely real people. Um, often who I think have more than one account and all that, all that nonsense. But in effect, what happened was I got a ton of emails from actual people who were Alex Jones listeners who said it was so refreshing to hear from a good, decent liberal. And I talked about being that I'm gay married and I'm pro-choice and I'm for a strong public education. I'm against the death penalty um, for euthanasia. We can go on and on about what my lib cred would be. And guess what? I went on his show, which whatever you think of his audience, well, I got some of them perhaps to come onto our side. So I think it's a little bit of the soft bigotry of low expectations here. It's like, I kind of know what I'm doing too, you know? And it's like, oh, he's just going on Alex Jones and promoting uh, propaganda. By the way, Alex Jones has never been on my show. He's been on Rogan's show. I wonder how much, you know, uh, flack Rogan gets for that. I don't know. But I think we're all held at different standards. My show, looks more like a conventional television show. So I think, for right or wrong, I think I'm held to a slightly different standard as an interviewer than, say, Rogan is, or even you, because this is, this is just audio. And I say that as someone that came out of traditional radio, and I, I love audio. Uh, but we're all held to sort of different standards, and I think we can just do the best that we can. Yeah,
0: so in choosing to have someone on your show,
1: is, is that a
0: relevant distinction, that Alex wasn't on your show? I mean, would you have him? On your show, and if you did, is there anything you would feel like you would have to ask him? Otherwise, it would be irresponsible to have given him a platform and not yeah. have asked that. Well, that I, I just
1: quickly I made the distinction only because I think a lot of people think I had him on, so I'm just pointing that out. And right. people always say, "Well, and it's you Ruben had Stefan Moilanu on." I would have the guy on. I haven't had him on. I, I've done his show, I think once or twice. Um, as for Jones, look, when I was on his show, I actually asked him. You know, there's that whole controversy about him and the Gay Frogs. So I asked him something about that and he kind of, whatever, I don't even remember the specifics of what he said. He was being sort of, he said he was being sort of sarcastic about some study or something. Um, I think in a case like that, where he's so on the line between occasionally making some sense of the noise and I think hitting the media properly. And then on the other hand, doing so much over the top stuff and really doing playing a character and the screaming and all of that nonsense, it's really hard for people to figure out what's real there. So if I, I'm not opposed to having him on, I'm, I'm truly not. Uh, I definitely will not be smoking a joint with him like, uh, like Joe did. Um, but I, yeah, there would be a certain responsibility to really, in a case like that, ask the right, my goal would be in, in a case like that to really try to figure out, well, what really is this all about? Like, what's really going on here? Does he really believe all this stuff? Is he just trolling the media? Like, what's really happening there? Uh, but by the way, I would do it the best way that I could, just as you would. And a certain amount of people would be angry because I didn't ask him this. And a certain amount of people would be say I, I did, him, did this or that. So
0: The crucial moment for me where he crossed the line, I, I'm, not, I'm by no means aware of everything he has said and done, but the the conspiracy theory around the Sandy Hook shooting being Mm -hmm. a hoax, that just caused so much demonstrable harm to the parents of these children that it was one of the more irresponsible things I've seen anyone with a significant platform do. And he did it for long enough that that he he just, he had to know the amount of personal suffering he was engineering for these people, and he kept doing it. I think he has since apologized for it, but it just went on forever. Yeah, So look,
1: you know what? Truth, truthfully, that if you, let's say, so I didn't know, I really didn't know that much about what he did around Sandy Hook. Even even now, I'm not even totally sure. I know he was, I guess he was saying it was a conspiracy or something. But if I had tweeted out that I'm going to be on Alex Jones later today, and and you or a series of other people that I that I fully respect, if Eric Weinstein or Peter Boghossian or, or Sharma or a bunch of other people had emailed me and been like, you know, have you seen what he did about this thing? Like, maybe this isn't the greatest thing for you to to be part of, I truly would have reconsidered it. I would have, I would have, and I'm saying this as someone that right now isn't fully a- aware of that whole situation. But you know, I just think it's it's sort of an endless. It's like an endlessly unfortunate game here that we're being forced to play in this very conversation. Uh, you know, I think personally we can get to a get to a place where. It's, I, I don't sense that you judge me in any way or think I'm doing this wrong or anything like that. But the fact that you have to deal with some of this flack, I think is interesting. And I think I mentioned this to you uh, privately once, but I'll, I'll say it publicly, that, you know, uh, when I had Tommy Robinson on, uh, way back when, who a ton of people, by the way, do, would not want me to talk to, and I got a ton of hate for it, uh, a few weeks, the reason I had him on was because a few weeks before that, you had said to me, having nothing to do with Tommy. You had said to me that sometimes you're concerned that because of the way you are portrayed and the way people slam and attack you and all the dishonest attacks and all that stuff, that sometimes you might uh, not get an opportunity or that there might be some author that doesn't want to work with you or something like that. And when I heard that, I really took that in. And then I think within the week or so, Tommy reached out to me about coming on. And I thought, wow, if if someone like Sam, who I know to be good and decent and all of those things, can be affected by this monster of innuendo and lies and slander and all that, well, then why wouldn't I at least talk to Tommy? And I think we had a pretty good interview. Now, of course, I got a a certain amount of hate for it, but I also got plenty of people that really liked it and got to see him in a new light. So I think just some of this is just the opportunity cost. If you're truly going to be willing to talk to people from from different sides, you're always going to get a certain amount of hate. But I will say this that I suspect virtually any, everyone that has uh, messaged you about me or put Dave in his place or, or how can you still be friends with him or blah, 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 I would venture to say that all of those people are on the left, and I doubt any of them are on the right, and I think that's really interesting because the reason that that's interesting is because, for example, I, when I interviewed Dawkins in, in August, uh, he was talking a lot about the, the Trump people, uh, except the Trump people and the Trump supporters aren't the ones that try to deplatform him at things uh, and aren't the ones that would write these awful things about you. So there is, so tolerance is running in a really strange place. Why am I invited constantly? My whole fall is booked to colleges. Why am I always invited by libertarians and conservatives and the, you know, the young liberty for tomorrow groups and all that, but I have literally no invites from democratic or progressive groups. So who, which way is tolerance running right now? And I'll always be willing to talk to people that'll talk to me. And, and usually at the last event that I did, at the Q&A, I, I welcome people to come up first that disagreed with me. I'm, I'm more than happy to do that stuff.
0: Yeah, well, the, the, the tolerance thing is fairly ironic because it is, as you say, running very much in the direction of authoritarians on the left trying to prevent certain kinds of speech and you're you're really not noticing that happening on the right it's it's very strange i guess that you know the, the truth is and, and this is i'm talking to you now and to our listeners and and specifically to the people who have asked this question it seems to me that there may not be a clear right answer here and i and i'm and i'm still finding for myself, what seems like the the appropriate answer. But I, I remember talking to Douglas Murray in in the last podcast we did about this, and he has a a strategy that's that's much more like yours in terms of who he will talk to. But you know, once he's talking to them, he's he's a little bit more like me in calling bullshit on everything that sounds like bullshit to him. But he will seemingly talk to more or less anyone. I mean, he, he's not really putting the filter up in terms of who he will put himself on on stage with and that that's just a, it's a different choice but he talked about again this cost of taking innuendo seriously and this and the cost of having to be accountable to the past and future of everyone you share a space with and and have a conversation with and he's just he personally is not willing to play that game he'll talk to anyone he he would talk to hitler if you could resurrect him and try to have as interesting and productive a conversation as possible.
1: I, I, you know, I don't think there's a right or wrong here, as I said, and, and we can do it differently. And look, I would guess that you probably have some listeners that are even Patreon supporters of yours who may possibly liked my Peterson interview better than yours, or that might've liked your Douglas Murray interview better than than yeah. mine. You well, know I mean, that, I mean? That, that's
0: the irony. So, so I, I don't believe I've said this, but you know, I, I really enjoyed Peterson's conversation with you and with Rogan, and I mean everyone has a great conversation with Peterson except for me, and I and I've tried <laughs> I've tried twice, but it, be so hard on yourself, yeah, and the the fault in some sense is mine, but the reality is, so like when I listened to, to Peterson talk most recently on Rogan's for with Brett Weinstein for three or four hours, and I tweeted this out. I said this, you know, this was this conversation was great except for the, the part where they talked about me. Because there, you know, Peterson, in a self-serving and fairly delusional way, you know, sort of summarized our disagreement in a way that is just not at all accurate. But I mean, this is what happens with me and Peterson. He 90% of what he says is great, and 10% strikes me as total bullshit. And the consequences of me pushing back on that 10% causes everything to begin to misfire in the conversation. So it's. The fact that you and Rogan don't have the same philosophical or scientific concerns to focus on that narrow band of statements and questions that, when he touches them, send all my alarm bells ringing, that leads to you having a much better conversation with him.
1: Perhaps, but you know what, Sam? I will fully grant that it's possible that that you, uh, in a certain regard, that you there's no doubt in my mind that Sam Harris knows things on a lot of fronts that Dave Rubin does not know about. So he, so something he might say might set off a bell with you that, that actually just gets past me. It's quite possible. Now it's also quite possible that for 99% of the listeners, the thing that got past me got past them too. So I'm going to ask a question in a way that's going to make fully, uh, that will fully make sense to them where perhaps then you'll get caught up on something that's, that's small that then ends up derailing the whole conversation. But then again, a certain amount of people are going to love that derailment because they're going to follow both of your logic and want it to get to its to its end. So what I think is interesting about this really is that I think we're both basically, you know, there's no right or wrong here. Okay, fine. We can we can always be better. I I always say it on my live streams all the time. You know what? Maybe 10 years from now, if I'm still doing this, I'll look back and be like, man, I should have asked this question or, or done this differently or said this or whatever it is. Um, but what I think is interesting here is nothing that I've heard, but maybe you have something in your pocket here and I'd, I'd love to hear it. Uh, nothing that I've heard so far has been about anything that I've actually said. So it, it oddly comes off as, uh, you know, well, he talked to this person or he didn't do this or he didn't tweet
0: that. So now that you suggest that, it's given that I've received a fair amount of your hate mail. <laughs>
1: Is it weird that I have it set forwarding to you? Is that, is that, yeah, it's fantastic. Is that a problem for you?
0: <laughs> I don't get enough of my own. <laughs> so it does come down to some things you've said. I, I don't have this verbatim, but it, it, things like your criticizing CNN or the New York Times or you know, the mainstream media in the same breath as criticizing you know, Breitbart or, or Infowars as fake news as though there were a, a moral or journalistic equivalence between the errors occurring on both sides of the divide or your failure to or perceived failure to notice the ways in which Trump has stepped so far beyond the bounds of normal political self-serving behavior into something quite a bit more alarming. That is something that, that people are, are faulting you for, or at least as far as I can tell from yeah, social well, media. Yeah, well, first off, listen,
1: I welcome, I welcome people to criticize me. I mean, if you're going to be a public person, you better deal with some criticism. So that's number one. So first off, to the, to the first point there, I don't think I've directly compared the New York Times and CNN to Breitbart or Infowars. I'm pretty sure that I've never, maybe once or twice in my entire life, have I ever directly linked to something on, on Infowars or on, uh, or on Breitbart. But as for my criticism of the mainstream media and of CNN and the New York Times, I stand by everything that I've said. I mean, w- there is a reason it is crumbling right now. It deserves to crumble. The CNN particularly, uh, the New York Times to a lesser degree, but, but uh, absolutely, and I would welcome your, your audience to listen to my interview with Eric Weinstein about in the New York Times, um, they, have, they have acted duplicit- duplicitously, dishonestly. They've built a narrative using it's always with anonymous sources. How many times do you turn on CNN when all the people who got everything wrong before the election are still quoting their same anonymous sources? Gloria Borger, their chief political analyst, I think that's her title, can't get a sentence out without saying her, her sources on Capitol Hill. These are made up nonsense that we've just sort of accepted. Uh, And of course, you know, at the same time, all of these people will pretend that they're totally apolitical. They have no opinions on any of this stuff when you know that nine out of 10 of them, and I bet you it's more than that, are are Democrats without question. Uh, I say this as someone that pretty much my entire life, I voted for Obama twice. I voted for Bill Clinton. I have pretty much only voted, I think I once voted for an independent, which was Mike Bloomberg and is, I think, the third time around in New York City. I've never even voted for a Republican. Uh, but but the media has been terrible and I actually am enjoying watching it crumble. Now, it could present a whole series of other problems on the other side of this, right? Because who are people going to trust? I mean, I get emails, people say, Dave, you're one of the only people I trust. I go, man, well, we're in a lot of trouble here. I, I'm just one guy doing some interviewing where people say, well, I, you know, I like Sam and I like Rogan and whatever. I mean, none of us are journalists in the traditional sense. I'm not out there fact finding and going on location and you know, checking sources and that sort of thing but i think the crumbling of the media absolutely is a good thing and did alex jones have a little something to do with that i guess he did but i don't know that i've commented on that so specifically well but but
0: i think the concern is that to say fake news as trump does and directing that at the mainstream media is to suggest that most of what one reads in the new york times or the washington post or the atlantic is a lie, right? Or, and, and certainly most of what one reads about Trump is a lie. And I, I would say that that's almost certainly untrue. And it is true to say that much of what comes out of Trump's mouth is a lie or a, or a, a shading of the truth that is to a degree that, that we really have never seen in our lifetime in politics. And most of what, you know, most of what one would read on Infowars or certainly much of it is a lie or a shading of the truth there's there is no real comparison to be made between the missteps on i mean cnn is is a little rougher around the edges than, than than something like the Atlantic or the New York Times or the New Yorker or any of these other old old school journalistic organs that have taken very strong positions against trump and these are not positions taken out of mere partisanship these are positions taken out of out of alarm at just who Trump is and how he has, how he campaigned, the fact that he won and, and how he has sought to govern. I mean, it's, it's just not, this is to summarize what has been said against him as an expression of partisanship doesn't seem right, given that I, you know, I have a long list of people, many of whom have been on this podcast, who are, who have never voted for a Democrat in their lives until Hillary Clinton came along because of just how alarming they found Trump to be.
1: Right. Well, look, there were a zillion people who thought Hillary was as alarming, if not more alarming, and I can understand that. I mean, you know, Hillary did vote for the Iraq war, as did Joe Biden. I don't think Trump voted for it, as he wasn't a politician. But first off, I didn't vote for Trump. Not only did I not vote for Trump, but I had you on in September, and we talked about why you don't like Trump. I think the week before the election, I had Hillary Rosen on, who's, I think she worked on the Clinton campaign, and she's a... She's a uh, CNN political pundit and a, and a hardcore progressive. Um, I had Michael Ian Black on right before the election, who's a progressive. And then I had uh, Scott Adams on, who you've talked to as well. I had him on a little bit before the election. So I'm just talking to people on, on all sides of this. I think that the conversation is interesting. I actually think that for as crazy as things seem right now, there's incredibly fertile ground for ideas. Everything is up in the air right now. You know, I, to me, this is the analogy I've used. This, there's a chessboard that has been tossed up. We knew that something was wrong with this game. Everyone knew there was something wrong with the media, the, the collusion. I mean, look, who colluded with the media? Guess what? It was Donna Brazil, who was the, you know, former head of the DNC, who then was working for CNN, uh, you know, who was giving Hillary campaign questions. That, that wasn't the Trump campaign. Again, this is not a defense of Trump. So every time I know, every time I say that, something like that, wow, you see he's defending Trump. It's not a defense of the guy that I didn't vote for. <laughs> it's. It's just a fact. So I think right now there's incredible fertile ground for for new and hopefully good ideas to take root. Now, will bad ideas flourish right now too because everything is so upside down? I mean, our political machine is upside down. Our Hollywood machine right now, a lot because of this Weinstein thing is upside down. The sports world is upside down, partly because of Trump and everything that's going on with the NFL and the anthem and all that. Everything's upside down. I think in a weird way, This actually is all good. I I think that there is opportunity here that had Hillary won for all the reasons that you didn't like her and that many other people didn't like her, but begrudgingly voted for her, all of those screws, the whole system, then the corrupt system and the Wall Street money and all of that stuff and the Clinton Foundation, isn't the Clinton Foundation basically closed now because they're not getting donations? It's almost as if they were giving money for political access, the, the donors. And then she lost her political power, so they stopped giving. So I would say that there's, there's incredible opportunity right now. We don't know which way it's going to go. Um, but if the criticism is that I don't criticize Trump enough, I mean, the whole world is criticizing him, you know, a thousand times a day. I, I don't, how much more is there to add to that? I mean, that's interesting, because I
0: think there probably is a different perception here of Trump lurking at the bottom of this, because... For instance, to see a silver lining to the current moment, having Trump as president, as just kind of shaking things up, it's kind of, to some degree, following the Scott Adams' line through this, which is the chaos is, is somehow good or not as chaotic as people are making it out to be.
1: Yeah, well, I, I would agree with that.
0: Yeah, like th- that doesn't resonate with me. I th- I think it has been as chaotic as it has been, and we have been extraordinarily lucky that there hasn't been any major international crisis or domestic crisis. We haven't seen how this government functions with a real stress test under Trump. It has not been by dint of anything that Trump has done, or at least it certainly doesn't seem to be. But, you know, if we suddenly have a war with North Korea or the stock market crashes or we have some kind of global pandemic.
1: Right, but but Sam, we're not, we're not at war with North Korea, and the stock market's doing incredibly well. The, the economy's doing well. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, I get it. <laughs> if, if this was the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, do I want Trump making all these decisions? As I said a thousand times over before the election, I have no idea what the guy's moral center is. I don't know, is he a complete narcissist and egomaniac and would even pressing the the... Button on the nuke would that even affect him for even more than a split second? I, I have no idea. Well, but it's, the,
0: but it's is, worse than that. I mean, it's not that you have no idea. You have, if you've been paying attention, you have good reason to believe that he is among the least capable people we could ever imagine putting into that role. I mean, in terms of his, you know, moral wisdom or the, the level in which his personal self regard gets in the way of him thinking clearly about. Events in the world. I mean, it's just, I would argue it's impossible to name someone in the media, in any, in any space, who've, who's done anything, who's, whose name could possibly occur to you, whose name I would know, who is more captivated by himself to a degree that's pathological for, for the role he now serves. So I Trump. totally
1: agree with that. I, see, it's, it's kind of funny because here it seems like I'm sort of defending him. All I'm really defending, I agree with everything you just said there. And again, I have no idea what actually is going on in his mind. I don't know. You know, I said before the election, all they had to do in the uh, debates was somebody had to say it just turned to him. Marco Rubio should have just turned to him or Ted Cruz turned to him and go, hey, Donald, what are the three branches of government? And do you think he would have known? I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm not even sure he knows right now. Um, but what I would say is that we've, you know, he's basically been president. The election is coming up on a year. He's been president for whatever it is, 10 months or so right now. And actually all hell hasn't broke loose. Now you're right. It might tomorrow. Um, but it might not. There may be things going on that we just aren't quite privy to. Um, I don't know that in well, reality, what's, what's going
0: on is we, we have a government that has, that is first of all, not staffed. Right. So we have, there, there's, There's much less going on in the government, like in the you know the State Department in particular, because the positions have not been filled. But also, we have a government that's spending an enormous amount of time resisting his attempts to govern. We have a government that's fighting itself, and even the Republicans are fighting him. But
1: that's good, Sam. That's good. The the fact that the
0: no, but talk about opportunity cost. It's good given what a maniac he is. It would be much better to have a great president who's trying to get good things done in the world.
1: Yes, of course. But actually, I think you're really making a great argument for libertarianism, and I think it's a great argument for limited government and states' rights. I I was in D.C. all last week, and I went to Mount Vernon, which is, you know, Washington's estate, and I went to uh, the Lincoln Memorial and the Jefferson Memorial and all of those things. Almost everything that these guys wrote about, Thomas Jefferson's my favorite of all of them, was about limiting the, the power of government. So in an odd way, the Republican's going against the president right now and he hasn't been able to do the things that he wants to do. The only things he's been able to do are by the power of the pen because we've ceded so much power by executive authority to the office of the presidency. So when Obama was doing it, none of these lefties had a problem with it. Nobody was saying anything about it. I actually did. You can check my Twitter. I wasn't happy about it. And I'm not happy by, by Trump legislating like this either. The problem is that Congress does absolutely nothing. That being said, the fact that we're in, if you think ultimately that Trump is this evil, evil you know, megalomaniac and, and, you know, horrible human being, the fact that he hasn't really been able to do anything is a good sign. But I would say on the broader side of that, that this is all a great lesson in why we should have limited government the way we were supposed to, the way the Constitution was written and the way the founding fathers wanted us to to be governed. I mean, there's a reason that they wanted states' rights and a very neutered, very neutered uh, federal government. So I think they'd all be rolling in their graves if they saw what was happening right now. But at the same time, they would go, you know what? As screwy as this Trump guy is, the system is actually working. And you know what? (laughs) If none of this changes, and I suspect it won't, unfortunately, if Trump is out in four years and a Democrat's in, guess what? They're gonna reverse all of those executive actions. And it'll be a sad statement on democracy that, we, that our legislative branch, our Congress and Senate, don't do anything. It will be really unfortunate. But, you know, for all of the things that, you, you know, if you don't like Trump getting rid of Obama regulations, well, then, you know, we got to stop governing by executive action. That's what people should be talking about. But the fact that nothing's happened and nothing seems to be happening in a bizarre way shows the strength of the system right now.
0: Yeah, and it's, given what we said about the left... At the top of this, it's hard to see who will oppose him in four years, provided he lasts his term, which is by yeah, no means well, assured.
1: Unfortunately, I think, yeah.
0: I mean, I, Where is the Democrat you would actually want to see in the
1: White House at this point? It's a very short list, and I'm not sure anyone's on it. I, I literally can't think of anyone. I mean, it's pretty obvious that the Democrats are going to continue down the identity politics path and this whole social justice warrior and intersectional craziness. So that's going to bring us, you know, they're not going to run Bernie again, because he'll be, you know, 106, but Elizabeth Warren or one of these, or Keith Ellison or one of these people, I think that would be an absolute disaster. What I would really love to see is an old school Democrat. Where, where is the JFK of tomorrow? Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I would love to, where's Daniel Patrick Moynihan or Jacob Javits? Those are the, you know, these are the types of basic centrists that should exist. Um, but they don't exist in the Democratic Party. If anything, I, the, what I see growing now is there, there's a huge libertarian movement. There's a, there's a movement of people who understand that if, if you don't like Trump, the answer right now isn't to burn down the whole system. And I said before the election, the answer isn't to burn down the system either way, whether your person gets in or not. The answer is to stop giving the government so much power, live and let live. I mean, these are basic liberal principles that have been completely forgotten. And we live in a country of 350 million people from every walk of life. There are more people that have come here and made a better life for themselves than anywhere. This is the greatest experiment ever in the history of the world. And I think it has a bright future in front of it if good people start stepping up again. And, uh, and hopefully out of this fertile ground that I was talking about a few minutes ago, hopefully people start doing that. Hopefully there's someone listening to this right now that's gonna jump in on it and, and start... You know, running for office and getting some of the power back to the people. Yeah, that's what I think the answer is.
0: Yeah, well, we have made it uh, with social media and everything else a pretty thankless task to try to get elected. (laughs) I mean, it's just brutal to imagine attempting it. Who who would choose to be a politician at this
1: moment? Yeah, can you imagine? I mean, what what an absolute freaking nightmare! But again, that also shows that we have to correct this thing. That's the stuff. Look, Sam. At the end of the day, it doesn't. You know, if you would like me to criticize Trump a little bit more or you know, ask a question this way. Or that. All of this is just sort of sidebar nonsense. I, you know, there's th- that, there's just a lot of people right now who are sort of like Heath Ledger in the Joker, uh, as the Joker in the, in that Batman, uh, which is, they just want to see the world burn and they just want to get everybody to fight with everybody. And they want to get, you know, ter- make people friends turn against each other and all of this stuff. It's not how regular people operate go out there and talk to real people. You know, you, you're doing the travel gigs and, and talking to fans and doing Q&As. People aren't like this. The, the, the online nonsense, but Twitter in particular, is leaking into the real world and it's making people absolutely crazy. And I think people just need to step back and realize how good this thing is. This thing that we've got going here in America is still so good. And if you, if whatever you think about Trump fight for what's right in this country, fight for the simple truths and the simple rights that were supposed to be given by the Constitution. That's the answer to some of this stuff. But the, the endless bickering, I mean, just think about it. Think about how many people would be so thrilled if at the end of this, you were like, you know what, fuck off, Ruben, we're done. Like, it's, it's just, that, that would make a certain amount of people who just want to make noise and get everybody to turn on each other, they would just love that. It's just not the game that I'm playing. So I see there are times when uh, I see some people that have spent years attacking you have now started attacking me. They've sort of exhausted, they feel that they've exhausted, uh, Sam, let's see if we can move to Ruben. And my my policy is just not to engage with these people because they want to drag you forever. And you did a valiant effort of fighting back against them for a long time. What you did and showing your bravery is one of the things that made me get involved in this conversation. You know, that first conversation that we had just about two, two years ago, a little over two years ago, it, it was, to me, it's one of the greatest moments of my personal and professional life because it, it was me stepping into it, the real world of, of standing up for what I believe in and seeing someone that was unfairly maligned and wanting to be part of the pushback against it. Um, so I just think that's, for me, that's the type of place that I like operating in. Am I going to be perfect in that place? Of course not. But will I keep trying to be better? Absolutely. I find myself stepping back from social
0: media now. I don't know if you yeah, you have, too. but I, I but I am I now go for days without looking at Twitter, which which was not something that was happening for I mean for months at a time. I w- I was looking at it many times a day and there was no decision I made, but I just I've just found that there's a a general sense of misspent attention that I, I'm more and more sensitive to, and, and it's just the toxicity and pointlessness of so much that goes on there. I'm kind of recalibrating my use of it.
1: Well, I, I totally agree. I mean, I've been trying to take weekends off. I did it again this weekend. I just put my phone in a different room in the house, and I don't look at anything. Uh, you know, I did that month off in August, and I didn't even know that uh, until the night that I happened to see you. Uh, That's sort of the 30th night. Oh, that was was crazy. 31 31 days, and I literally knew nothing. I mean, I I genuinely did it, and guess what? I felt incredible. I felt more patient. Uh, I felt that when I, even something simple, like when I was at the supermarket, like just being nicer to the cashier instead of staring at my phone. Weren't you being
0: attacked for your silence on
1: Charlottesville? (laughs) (laughs) So then I get back on the grid and I had right before I saw you that evening, I had Eric Weinstein give me a little recap because I knew we were having this uh, dinner with a whole bunch of people. And obviously, we were going to talk about current events and things. So I said to Eric, you know, maybe you should just debrief me for a half hour. And he's going on and on about all the people attacking me for my silence over Charlottesville. And it's like, I literally, first off, I wasn't even in the country. And secondly, I, I didn't have my phone at all. So Again, this is all just craziness. You know what? I was actually in Mexico and I met some Christian conservatives who I absolutely loved. I met a, a black and Latina lesbian couple who uh, I totally adored and have stayed in touch with. It's like people—people people are just terrible. But what I did do when I was down there and I was working on my book and a few other things is I did try to take some of the things that that you've written about from Waking Up, and I was working on breathing and meditation and all that stuff. And I genuinely felt better. So. All You know, it's unfortunate we've done about 50 minutes here, and we've, we have to talk about all of these little things that other people make us think about. But you know what? At the end of the day, for all the differences that you have with Peterson, or I may have with Shapiro, or you have with Shapiro, or any of these people, it's like we're all still trying to find answers. And I know for sure that even if you and Shapiro, who, who disagree on the most existential question there is, talking about God... Um, I know you guys want to live in the same country because the country that you both want to live in is tolerant of, of each of you. And that's the country that I want to live in. And guess what? That's the country that Peterson wants to live in. So none of these people are my enemy in any way whatsoever. They're people who I've, am pro-choice. Shapiro is, is pro-life. You know, I'm, I'm gay married. I, you know, I'm trying to prove a point here. I don't just talk about stuff. I actually do it. I'm gay married, and I had Shapiro in my house, and, he, and he's an Orthodox Jew who really isn't for gay marriage, but he's now sort of taking the libertarian position on it. But I've had a Bishop Barron from the Archdiocese in LA who's still completely against it. But guess what? He probably still wants to live in the same society as me. So I think building bridges in all these places is much more effective than burning them down, but <laughs> it's a smart move by you to spend less time on, on social media. And I'm doing the same, and I think a lot of people actually, a lot of the people sort of Within this, whatever this world is that we're sort of in, I think a lot of us are are kind of going, this is just a colossal waste of time now. It, it had some value for a while, um, but the endless fighting and, you know, why would you spend, why would Sam Harris spend one minute responding to an anonymous anime furry cat who's yelling at him about Islam? I mean, think about it. It, it really, if you step away for a second, it's pretty bananas.
0: Yeah, well... Thank you for taking the time to respond to this question on this AMA.
1: <laughs> I don't even know what the question was at this point, but I, I, hope, I hope we made some sense out I'm of it. I'm not
0: sure I can forgive you for your
1: silence on Charlottesville, but <laughs> you'll have to work on me over the months and years ahead. You know what I'm going to do for now on every time I do one of these, you know, little off-the-grid shutdowns? I'm just going to put up an auto-reply on everything saying, I defer to Sam Harris on any current event that happens while I'm gone.
0: All right. Well, that's that's when I will uh, troll Cernovich again, and, and you'll, you'll get all the credit. <laughs> well, thank you, Dave. It's really been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Okay. Well, I don't know if that helped. Uh, you be the judge. But that was, I think that's as close as I can come to an answer on how Dave and I may approach these things differently. I think we we do approach them differently. You know, as we discussed, we have different styles of interviewing. I think we have some differences of opinion about the status of Trump as president and the likely upside to having a pathologically self-involved imbecile in the White House. But generally speaking, I am undecided about Where the bright lines are here in terms of talking to people. And my conversation with Douglas Murray left me a little confused on this point. I think Douglas's approach is quite principled and it has been different from mine. And I'm, you know, we're all just kind of finding our way in this space. But I certainly more than Dave and more than Douglas, I have decided to be fairly conservative in who I will give a platform to here. And there are people like Cernovich and Alex Jones and others who I really am not tempted to talk to. I don't think engaging them would go anywhere especially interesting. I don't consider them interlocutors who are who are honest. I mean that that really is the the first criterion for me. There's only so much time in the day or in a human life, and I am more and more disposed not to waste mine. Okay, next question. This podcast is at least partially about helping us get better at updating our views on things, especially on important topics. What is the biggest issue you've changed your mind about recently, and what was the catalyst for that change? You know, I just mentioned the fact that I am genuinely uncertain about just how to do this job, you know, and and who to talk to, and some of the things Douglas said about how he decides who to talk to in that podcast did push around my intuitions a little bit here, and I'm still sort of sorting all that out. So I can't tell you what my mind has changed to there, but the things that Douglas said about how absurd it is to play the guilt by association game those have influenced me. I just don't know what the the upshot is. as you know, Majid's way of talking about Islamism versus Islam has been very influential in how I talk about these things. Now, I should say the change hasn't so much been one of substance because in the end of faith, if you read it carefully, you will see that I am talking about when I talk about Islam, I'm talking about diehard believers in the most divisive and regressive doctrines of Islam. I'm talking about jihadists, I'm talking about Islamists, but it was always clear to me there was a spectrum of commitment here, and I'm talking about people who are extremely committed to these doctrines. Therefore, I was not talking about all Muslims when I was criticizing Islam as a set of ideas. So the substance of my criticism hasn't really changed, but I've been persuaded that the way I was talking about these things was needlessly confusing and inflammatory, and, and I think Majid is right about that. So I certainly changed my mind with respect to tactics. What else? Well, recently I, I noticed that my opinion of uh, the Burmese Nobel laureate and erstwhile humanitarian Aung San Suu Kyi has changed fairly radically, as it has for most people who know about her. I remember what it was like to view her as a kind of secular saint uh, when she was under house arrest for those many years. And I considered her absolutely deserving of the Nobel Prize when she won it. And she has since, in her negligence and complicity in the ethnic cleansing and, and even seeming now attempted genocide of the Rohingya Muslims in Burma, she has just suffered or engineered her own reversal of reputational fortune almost on the level of a Harvey Weinstein. It's just, it's incredible. She is viewed as a monster in many circles, and there is something monstrous about her, at least her silence on this issue. No doubt there's a political calculation there that explains it, but she is not the Nobel laureate we knew and loved. So yeah, it didn't take too much reporting from the New Yorker and the New York Times to change my opinion of her, but it seems to have changed. And again, who knows what actual political stresses she's under with respect to the the Burmese military government, but still. She could always leave the country in protest, and she hasn't done anything like that. So, anyway, she's not a, her moral stature is zeroed out at this point, and the atrocities being committed against the Rohingya, if current reports are accurate, are about as bad as any you can think of. Okay, you received recent outrage on your condemnation of BLM Black Lives Matter during your interview with Douglas Murray. Why do you believe that BLM is, quote, obviously destructive to civil society, end quote? What is your evidence? And why do you think it's not helping people of color? Okay, well, I think identity politics is a bad idea at this point. I think if your argument is that a unique victimhood status at this point in American history is the important thing to emphasize, I think that's a losing game now. Now, I wouldn't have said that in 1964, when it was time to pass a Civil Rights Act, but that is the way it appears to me now. And much of what I have heard BLM advocates say, or so-called BLM advocates say, it's a little hard to know who anyone is these days, in the aftermath of police shootings in response to something like the the Vegas incident that i just described all those geniuses who got on twitter and said if he'd been black he would have been called a terrorist it is genuinely harmful to speak that way now that is going to give us more of what we saw in charlottesville understandably so you will have white imbeciles reacting to black imbeciles till the end of time we have to achieve a commitment to speaking honestly about facts. And all of these popular eruptions of identity politics fail on that score. They're not honest. They're not honest about statistics of crime and police violence and what's actually happening in the world, who gets killed, where and when and why and how. Virtually everything said in the identity politics space, about what's happening is at best slanted. There are Trumpian levels of dishonesty on the left around these topics, and it's harmful. And BLM is part of that problem. And if you're going to argue that in the aftermath of having a two-term black president, that nothing has changed in American society with respect to race, if you're going to be like ta Coates and endlessly beat the drum of black identity politics as though we are living in the first years of reconstruction and not acknowledge any gains that we've made against racism in our society, you're delusional and insofar as people believe what you're saying, what you're saying is harmful. And BLM has some of that in it. So I just think we have to get out of the identity politics game and I would I would say the same about organized atheism too at this point. I think we have to reason honestly about specific issues and the only team we should pick is team human at this point. Now, of course, I am not saying that racism doesn't exist or that it's not a problem. Of course it exists and where it exists, it is a problem. But at a certain point, this movement politics, this rhetoric of victimhood is not the antidote to that kind of racism, and I feel that we are at that point. And I take the example of somebody like Glenn Lowry, who was on this podcast, who's the economist at Brown, who is a slightly right of center, he might even be slightly left of center now, black, public intellectual who has his own podcast where he often talks to John McWhorter, the linguist from Columbia, and those guys are fantastic on these issues, and they can say things that I can't say without preparing a fair amount of pain for myself because they're both black, but I have yet to hear anything of real substance from either of them that I disagree with. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but if you want to understand my criticism of Ta-Nehisi Coates, listen to people like Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter talk about Tanahasi Coates. I think they're spot on Tanahasi Coates, on my reading, is producing a kind of pornography of anger and identity politics, and I think it's neither accurate when you're talking about society as a whole nor is it helpful and the fact that he is the darling of the left at the moment, says a lot about where the left is and how ill-equipped it is to deal with the problem of white populism and the rise of the so-called alt-right. Okay, these are two sides of the same game here, and neither is your friend. No doubt I created some trouble for myself there, but moving on. Next question. What should the limits of free speech be? is it morally defensible to incite violence in a situation where it will lead to the best consequences? Well, there's a lot lurking in there in the phrase best consequences. If it's really going to lead to the best consequences, well then, generally, I think that answers the question. I'm not a pacifist. There are situations where violence will lead to the best consequences because perhaps all consequences are bad and you're looking for the lesser evil here. So, in those situations, advocating violence seems like a legitimate use of speech. If the violence itself will be legitimate, well then then how could it be wrong to advocate for it? But generally, I think in the U.S., our laws are pretty good with respect to speech. I think we err on the side of allowing it, even when it's pretty clearly harmful. And I think all things considered, That is where our errors should fall, if they are errors. I think we should allow too much speech rather than too little. This came out in my conversation with Cass Sunstein, who uh, took this line, and and that seems to be what our Constitution provides for. And this is not true in countries like the UK uh, or in other countries that have something akin to blasphemy laws. Canada is passing laws against certain kinds of speech. There are Holocaust denial laws in various countries, Germany certainly, I think Austria too. I think those are totally wrong-headed and don't produce the desired outcome. I think sunlight is the best disinfectant here and sunlight entails more speech. Let people make fools of themselves. Let people destroy their reputations. Let people get criticized. And the moment you make it illegal to say certain things, then you drive these opinions underground and who knows how influential they are. Okay, next question. Do you ever struggle with a feeling of superiority when interacting with everyday people? Uh, That's a kind of a strange question. I guess I should take that as a compliment. It would never occur to me to think of myself that way, really. I mean, the easy answer is no. I don't tend to feel superior to other people. In fact, as I go through life or read the newspaper, I'm constantly seeing people who impress me with what they're able to overcome, how much they can achieve despite real adversity. An adversity of a sort that I've never experienced. There are people who are struggling with health issues and financial issues and sheer bad luck that I would find it very difficult to grapple with day to day, and they're making beautiful lives and and impressive contributions despite those facts so So no I, I tend to be impressed with people now. I guess that the basis of this question is it seems to be rooted in the sense that I spend a lot of time criticizing bad ideas, and I certainly do that. I'm also fairly well educated, but I don't view that as I mean, superiority doesn't track those differences for me. First of all, you know my views on free will and how none of us created ourselves. I think luck plays an overwhelming role here across the board. It would seem very strange to feel superior to people for having won the lottery, say, whether with respect to money or health or intelligence or good relationships or good opportunities or anything else. So insofar as I've been lucky, I am incredibly grateful. For that. Insofar as other people have been luckier than I've been, I hope they use their luck to everyone's advantage. When I look at someone like Elon Musk, who's getting more done in a week than most people would get done in a century, I am just cheering from the sidelines there and don't begrudge him any of his success or good luck. I just say, Go, Elon, go. Right. But superiority doesn't enter into it even there. I mean, Elon is obviously better at many things than most people, but he is also worse at many things than many people. So it's a mixed story even there. And I am highly aware of my own deficits as a person. So this is a perfect inoculation against walking around feeling superior all day long. And the next question is about Elon. Okay, could you please invite Elon Musk on the podcast to talk about his various pursuits and interests? Well, Elon knows he has an open invitation on the podcast, but he's in a difficult spot. He is running at least two major companies, though he has other companies he's sort of running, and at least one of those is publicly traded. He has tens of thousands of employees, many of whom are probably religious. I've always felt and told him that I completely understand if a public association with me is not helpful for his PR needs. So I'm not going to press my invitation with him because I don't want to put him in a situation where he feels like he needs to do me a favor as a friend, but it's something that he would rather not do for his own reasons, business or otherwise. So yeah, I haven't pushed it. He knows the podcast exists, and he knows the door is open. We would have a great conversation, I'm sure, but I do not want to add any friction to his world, because the man has a lot to get done. Next question. If you were appointed director of the world for 24 hours and could make three decrees that could never be reversed, what would they be? Huh. Okay. Well, I'm not sure I can think of three specific decrees here, but perhaps there are some general principles. Generally, we need global cooperation to solve global problems. And some of these problems have time horizons that are longer than a single human life, and longer, therefore, than most people can be motivated by. So we need to spend some time, some considerable time, I think, planning for the far future or hedging against things like existential risk. And we really should be willing to sacrifice something for future generations, if only for our grandchildren. So I think questions of existential risk deserve a higher priority than they're getting, specifically nuclear proliferation Should get much more attention than it does. AI, synthetic biology, any technology that could fundamentally get away from us deserves special attention. So I don't know what the decree is here, but I would mandate that more resources get spent on engineering global cooperation on long term problems. I'm not sure how you do that, but clearly we have to do that. So for instance, The state of our conversation about nukes now, where we have a president who threatens nuclear war and we have a North Korea that is claiming that it will win a nuclear war against America, this is just terrifying, right? We have actual lunatics in charge of our conversation about the most dangerous technology ever invented. I could easily see this running off the rails. To the point where it would in fact be rational for us to execute a nuclear first strike on North Korea. I mean, this is so perverse, it's very hard to describe, but it's, I think, nonetheless possible. Even rational people could be happy that we have a psychopath like Trump in the White House who could actually execute a nuclear first strike, whereas a psychologically healthy person wouldn't be able to. Because of how dangerous the situation has become. I don't think we're there yet, but once North Korea actually has an ICBM that can land on the US with an appropriately miniaturized nuclear warhead, given what that regime is saying, there will definitely be an argument for a first strike. And our own president has a hand in turning up the heat. On this crisis, given how unfiltered and unprincipled his own statements are, the situation is totally untenable. It's very hard to see it persisting in any kind of stable way for decades. This is one of the consequences of not having sensible people in charge of our government at the moment. So, back to a decree, I think nuclear proliferation would be something that would require an extreme focus at this moment in history. Because when you read about the history of how we avoided a nuclear war with the Soviet Union, it's not consoling. Read Command and Control by Eric Schlosser, recent book on this topic. It's been sheer good luck that has kept us from blowing ourselves up. It's, it's just amazing, the ineptitude. And the cascade of errors that have been totally self-inflicted. And then when you look at the prospect for miscommunication between nuclear armed powers, and now cyber meddling, right, misinformation, fake first strikes that people then feel like they have to respond to, all of this is growing more precarious, I think. And the fact that we have a president who does nothing but brag about our nuclear arsenal and literally threatens a nuclear first strike without even seeming to know what his own words mean, it's pretty grim. Okay, next question. Given the popularity of Ayn Rand on the right, can you give your best refutation of objectivism? Well, you know, I haven't spent a lot of time reading Rand. I found her novels more or less unreadable. And I've read some of her essays, I've read some of her interviews. My basic issue with her ethics is that she seemed she seemed not to understand that pro-social emotions, like compassion, were a real source of well-being, even for quote, selfish people. The stark opposition between selfishness that she thought was rational and altruism, that she thought was delusional or masochistic, that, I think, is, is psychologically untrue and ethically unhelpful. I think a wisely selfish person more and more begins to recognize that he or she is committed to the happiness of other people and is right to be, that their happiness redounds to his own happiness. That is a a more mature, a more enlightened form of ethics than any I've ever heard Rand espouse. And it's also more enlightened and mature than I tend to hear fans of Rand espouse. So, whatever Rand herself believed, those who are drawn to her philosophy often strike me as malignantly selfish and unillumined by a, a larger picture. Of just how good life could become, right, if we, if we also saw that we were in this together. Okay, next question. My question is about free will and intention. I agree with your take on free will being an illusion. However, you also discuss how the intention behind actions matters. For example, whether actions are taken out of ignorance, indifference, or malice. This appears contradictory. If there is no free will, Then there would also be no agent who intends, and even intentions themselves would be determined by physical processes. If free will is an illusion, how can intentions remain morally significant? Okay, so that's a great question. Happily, it's one to which I have an answer, or think I do. So I believe free will is an illusion. I believe your intentions are also a product of the way the universe is, the way your brain is, the way past states of The world and your genes and everything else you couldn't control produced your brain and mind as it is in the present moment. So, again, you didn't invent yourself and therefore you didn't invent your intentions and your desires and the things that captivate you in the world and the goals to which you aspire. You didn't invent any of this. You didn't invent your interests. You are as interested and as motivated. In bringing about some change in your life or in the world as you are, precisely in this moment, for reasons that you can't inspect and did not create. And if you suddenly make some huge effort on the basis of something I've just said here or on the basis of some thought occurring to you, again, that change in you is something that you, the conscious witness of your life, didn't create. There is this mystery at your back that is pushing everything forward including your intentions and efforts so yes that's that is the picture of the human mind that i believe is scientifically true and subjectively salient to me when i actually pay attention so it's you you can feel this way about yourself this isn't just what science suggests this can be this can be your moment to moment perception of what it's like to be a conscious mind but the question is, given all that, how are intentions morally relevant? Why isn't everyone not guilty by reason of insanity? Why is it different if someone intentionally harms you rather than accidentally harming you because they're not really responsible for their intentions? So the difference is not a matter of ultimate responsibility. The difference is a matter of Just what the character of another person's mind is, and what is it that will influence them to bring about behaviors and relationships that make your life or anyone's life better. So if someone steps on your toe by accident, that says nothing at all about the rest of his or her mind. It says nothing about whether or not. He or she wishes you well or ill. it says nothing about what this person is likely to do in the future if given a chance. right It says nothing about what this person is likely to say about you behind your back. So it has no implication for your relationship to this person. It was an accident. Now if someone steps on your toe on purpose, right perhaps we need to think of a different action here if someone Physically assaults you on purpose, right? They're not bumping into you. They didn't trip. No, they're actually trying to push you into the street so you can be run over by a car. That is, they're attempting murder. Well, that suggests something about them that you really need to take into account. Now, they could be insane, say, they could be delusional, they could think you're an alien from outer space and Therefore, the intentions are arising in their mind on the basis of things that really have nothing to do with you. But still, this person is genuinely dangerous to you at that moment because of what they intend. But let's say the person is totally sane, right? They're not delusional at all. They actually just hate you. You know, they hate you to a point where they want to murder you. That says a lot about the rest of their mind. It says a lot about what they will do very likely in the future. Maybe says something about what you have done in the past to stoke this kind of hatred, right? It has implications for your life and your relationship. All of these differences are morally relevant in the sense that it matters what is so. The only way you can navigate this space so as to get to some position that is better than the place you're in at that moment is to understand what's actually going on with this person. Again, there's no free will involved, but intentions matter because they suggest global attributes of a person's mind and what they're likely to do in the future if given a chance. And they suggest whether or not they can be influenced one way or the other. So is a person going to be responsive to being punished? Is that a sufficient disincentive to them so that We can be confident that their behavior is going to change. Well, not if they're crazy, right? Not if they're hearing voices telling them to commit murder. Not if they think they're talking to their dog, right? Then punishment doesn't work. So we we need some other intervention. You need to know what levers are there to pull. Again, no implication for free will here. A person's responsiveness to punishment is not a matter of his free will, but we all benefit if we understand what situation we're in with respect to the actions we can take that will influence another person's behavior. Can we reason with members of ISIS? A lot turns on that question. Can we discourage them by freezing their financial assets or not? These are, again, these are just questions of causality. Free will has nothing to do with it. But we are asking about whether or not people are rational actors to one or another degree. Is a person rational? That's not a question about free will. It's a question about whether a person is responsive to reasons and normal incentives. Does the person feel any burden to have a coherent worldview? Would showing this person that he's working against his own interests matter to him? These are questions that we're asking about another human mind that guide our relationship to it. But again, we need not invoke free will or impute it to other people to think in this way. But this is why we view someone who intentionally harms others and takes pleasure in it as being more dangerous than someone who accidentally harms others and feels horrible that they participated. In such an accident, these will be different people moving forward into the future. And it's only appropriate to acknowledge that in our criminal justice system in in how we treat these people. Okay. Next question, getting toward the end here. One of the biggest critiques of the moral landscape seems to be your glossing over Hume's is ought problem. Can you explain that critique to a layman listener and your response to it? Well, it's not so much that I, I glossed over it, it's that I disagreed with it. Hume is famous for having suggested that you can't get an ought from an is, which means you can't get a, a notion of what someone ought to do, morally speaking, from a description of the way the world is, factually speaking. So this is the so-called facts-values divide. Now, I would say that If you can't decide how you should live by considering how the universe is in its totality, just what could tell you how you should live? If all the facts in the universe aren't enough to tell you how you ought to live, what could be enough? That's one question. And I I take that as a reductio ad absurdum of this line of argument. But more important, I think you can just forget about the notion of ought and the notion of should and even the notion of morality and get to something more fundamental here. Forget about notions of right and wrong and good and evil. Forget about whether or not you have any obligation to do anything in this universe. Just recognize that we live in a universe where very different life experiences are possible. There's a landscape of possible experience. And some of these experiences are clearly better than others. And this is the only thing you need to grant to understand my argument and to collapse this this so-called is-ought problem. Some of the experiences on offer in this universe are better than others. And my argument here starts with the concept of the worst possible misery for everyone. Imagine a universe where every conscious being that can suffer suffers as much as it possibly can for as long as it can. We're talking about a perfect hell. It is impossible to produce more suffering than this because every possible mind. Exists and is suffering as much as it possibly can for as long as it can. There's no silver lining to the suffering. These minds are not getting better by virtue of suffering. They're not moving on to some higher station in life. No, we've created a universe where it is as bad as it possibly can be for as long as it can be for everyone. Now, all you need to grant is that. There are other states of the universe that are better than that. And once you grant that, I have all I need to make the argument I make in the moral landscape. There are some states of the universe that are better than that. And they will be better by virtue of what it means at every level to produce minds that have more well-being than that. More well-being than the worst possible misery. So what are the dials physically that you have to get a hold of to make conscious experience better than absolutely excruciating? Right? These are biochemical dials in our own case. These are conceptual dials if we're talking about propositional attitudes that human minds have. I mean, there, there are many different levels at which to talk about this but we are talking about facts that can be scientifically understood to one degree or another, and we're also talking about facts about which people can be completely ignorant, and yet the facts are no less important for their well-being. We, until very recently, lived in a world where most people spent their entire lives without ever knowing that the wet material in their heads had something to do with their life experience, right? There was no neuroscience, there was no conception that the brain did much of anything at all. Certainly if you go back 10,000 years, humanity was in that circumstance. Didn't mean the brain was any less important, it just meant no one knew what it was doing. So undoubtedly there are facts of that sort about which we're currently ignorant, which nonetheless have a lot to do with... Making our lives the way they are and limiting our well being. So, the fact that there can be radical disagreement about what human life should be like and what's better than what, and that is not relevant to my argument. There's a distinction between what I call answers in practice and answers in principle. All you need to grant me is that there are better places to get, that there are peaks. Or relative peaks on this moral landscape that are higher than some of these very low places where everyone is tortured from the moment the lights come on in infancy until the end of time. It gets better than that. And if you're not going to grant that, then I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you mean by anything you could subsequently say about anything, really. You know, I don't know why you don't just light yourself on fire. Right, If you believe that no experience is better than any other, if you think that's an illusion, you know I have a a bridge I'd like to sell you right. This is the one thing that can't be an illusion that conscious experience admits of these kinds of distinctions of better and worse. It's not to say we're subjectively incorrigible on this point. you can be wrong about what's better and worse, clearly, you cannot know what you're missing. clearly, you can think. The thing you're doing now is absolutely essential to your happiness. And actually, the thing you're doing now is guaranteed to undermine your happiness. You can be mistaken. You can be an alcoholic, right, who thinks that drinking is still a very good strategy for managing your state of mind. But in fact, alcohol is the reason why your life is unraveling. Okay. That's all true and possible. But there are nonetheless facts at the bottom of all of this about human well-being, which can be more or less understood. Anyway, that's my, that's my response to the idea that, that I glossed over Hume's distinction here. And in responding to that, I'm responding to less to what Hume actually wrote there, because he was making a, a far more ancillary point about theological notions of right and wrong then I am responding to what people have subsequently done with Hume's argument in philosophy. Okay, I think I'll make this the last question, because this has been a long one. What are your thoughts on feminism in Western and developed countries? I believe I know your thoughts about the subject in developing and religious countries, but I'm curious what your take is on women's issues in modern societies. Well, again, much of what I said about identity politics applies here. It sort of depends on what you mean by feminism, because this, as you know, can mean many different things, some of which are clearly crazy, and some of which you'd have to be crazy, or at least immoral, not to endorse. So there's quite a range. I mean, do you mean Andrea Dworkin feminism? Do you mean Naomi Wolf? Do you mean this intersectionality, moral panic we're noticing on college campuses? Do you mean people who will not admit that there's any difference biologically between men and women apart from the reproductive system? Or do you mean people who completely disavow evolutionary psychology and think that every human being is born a blank slate? Or do you simply mean people who are concerned about equity and fairness in our society and who acknowledge that there are situations where women have a harder time than men and that we should understand those situations and correct for those injustices. If the latter, well, then I consider myself a feminist. But generally speaking, I I was raised by a single mom and I am the father of two daughters. I realize this line of argument carries absolutely no weight with the victimologists out there, but it is nonetheless true to say that I am deeply committed to making the world a better place for women. And this sort of links back to my discussion of firearms at the top here. I I do view this through the lens of self-defense for women rather often and when you think of what it's like to be a woman in the world surrounded by men who outweigh her by 50 60 pounds a world where rape and other forms of sexual violence is a everyday reality uh and there are cultures where it's a greater reality than than in others i do think that there there is an asymmetry here that men shouldn't ignore and that women are right to emphasize. So I, you know, I am absolutely concerned about violence against women, and I'm a great advocate of women preparing to deal with that kind of violence. And if there is an argument for owning a weapon like a gun, I think the argument only gets stronger when you talk about a woman living alone and what she should own to protect herself. But clearly under the aegis of feminism the conversation can swing way too far in the opposite direction where all men are cast as potential rapists and, and creeps for every moment of their lives there's a way of of demonizing men that one notices online that is just delusional and totally unproductive so again, one, one has to speak honestly about what's actually going on in the world and what the real risks are for, in this case, women in various situations. But recent stories of the sort that we are now hearing about, you know, Harvey Weinstein and other men in positions of power like that, these are horrible stories. And these are stories that only run in one direction. We're not talking about men being sexually victimized and preyed upon by rapacious women who are in positions of power over them, right? That's not what's happening. We're not having groping scandals or rape scandals that run the other way. And there's a reason for that. Evolutionarily, there's a reason for that. Physically, there's a reason for that. Psychologically, there's a reason for that. Culturally, there's a reason for that. But still, there's an asymmetry here that you have to be Extraordinarily obtuse to ignore. And if feminism is an honest response to that, well, then I'm a feminist, right? Harvey Weinstein should have had the shit kicked out of him long ago. The fact that all these people covered for him was an astonishing moment of cultural pathology. And we should point out that many of the people covering for him were women. Women do not get off scot-free in this. Imagine the the women who worked for him, who were not being sexually coerced by him, but who were actually pimping for him, essentially. There's enough opprobrium to go around here, but the reality is is that women were uniquely vulnerable and have traditionally been uniquely vulnerable to this kind of predation, and I think we should have zero tolerance for it. So call me a feminist there. Again, I see this very much through the lens of self-defense and the ethics that apply there. And I think men have a responsibility not to be creeps. And if you're an honest man who is well-intentioned toward people generally, you have to acknowledge the capacity for men in general to be creeps. And you have to take some responsibility for falling on the right side of that line, wherever it is. And and granted, the line can be hard to find, right? I mean, there are all of these cases where seemingly innocent flirtation in public or in a work environment is now getting categorized as a kind of harassment, right? And the line can be very difficult to find. I I can only, I, I don't tend to live in those situations myself and obviously i'm married and you know i'm not a single guy struggling to work this out for himself out in the world but these interactions are becoming increasingly fraught and the fuse on both sides is getting shorter and shorter where you have women who are like everyone else it seems being moved by the spirit of identity politics more and more categorizing everything as a kind of assault And you have a kind of bro culture of young men being born online that is beginning to view women as the enemy across the board here. So again, I'm I'm somewhat distant from all this. This is not my world, but I can see how it's showing up, in particular online. It strikes me as incredibly dysfunctional. And and this links back to that question about intentions: it matters what people's intentions actually are. It matters what the character of a person's mind actually is. This is why it's bad to relax definitions of rape so much that you can't distinguish between rape rape and something like sexual harassment or even a sexual assault that's not a rape, right? I mean being groped is not the same thing as being raped. And the kind of person who would grope a woman on a subway isn't precisely the same person who would rape them at knife point. There are gradations even to the most pathological behavior. All the details matter. And And I worry that in talking about many of these things, we are showing more and more a susceptibility to a kind of moral panic and sloppiness. Words are becoming meaningless. The word "racist" is virtually meaningless now, given the way it's being used, and a phrase like "sexual assault," uh, one isn't actually sure what is meant by it, given the way it's often used. So we need to be more careful in how we talk about these things, and we need to be genuinely interested in what people have been intending. Right? I mean, this is this the other thing that's happening online where a misstep that is clearly not intended is leading to the absolute obliteration of a person's reputation simply because the worst possible reading, the least charitable possible reading of his or her words or actions is being enforced, even when there's endless evidence that there's more to that person than can be summarized by such a reading. So, it matters who people actually are, rather than what they can be made to seem to be by their enemies, or by hysterics, or by people who are just not taking the time to figure out what's going on. So, hopefully that made sense. No doubt I got myself into trouble somewhere here, but I'm talking to um, a select audience, those of you who are actually supporting the podcast, and therefore I can let my hair down Thank you again for your support. You who are hearing this are completely responsible for making the podcast a viable project. And I'm sure I'll be meeting many of you at the live events I've got coming in the fall and winter, and I'm looking forward to that. So, until then, thanks again.